Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6 and find your way to verses 13 to 20. That's the text that we'll be examining together on this Lord's Day. Since you don't have a bulletin in front of you this morning, I'll tell you the title of my message. It is A Biblical Prescription for Drifting. A Biblical Prescription for Drifting. Drifting we understand in the context of Hebrews. We've been talking about it for a while now. It's that sad state of the Christian who begins to move away from orthodoxy into error and all that leads up to that departure. The adjective biblical is also something that we know well. It describes that which is related to the Bible, theology, doctrine, but we use it also with the specific nuance of orthodox truth. I say that because cults that use the Bible as part of their belief system often reference people and events from the Bible too, but that doesn't mean that their teaching is biblical. Quite the opposite. People can reference the Bible all day long. It doesn't mean that what they say is true. So if we're going to appeal to the Bible for instruction, we need to do it in a way that fairly represents the text by means of sound hermeneutic principles. That's why I say that our understanding of biblical has to do or must include that which is orthodox. Right, so what's left in our, of our title? The word prescription. Well, that's not a word that we find in the Bible, but it is one that we are also well familiar with. Many, if not all of us, at various times in our lives receive a prescription from our primary care physician for medicine that will help prevent an illness or manage it for us, if not cure it altogether. But I don't want you to think about medicine this morning, or doctors, or hospitals for that matter. I know that's what you're thinking. It's hard not to think of anything else when you hear that word. After all, we live in a heavily medicated culture. Doctors throw medication at us all the time. And if health professionals are not prescribing more meds, then politicians are legalizing recreational drug use, and at a time when America's drug overdose epidemic is at its highest. It also doesn't help to be in the middle of a pandemic. So let me direct your thoughts in another direction. As the word prescription signifies, I do want you to think of instruction that comes to you from the great physician and healer himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. That prescription also treats the very serious condition threatening the Christian walk we're calling drifting. And because this prescription is biblical... It doesn't prescribe medication. Rather, it confronts necessary, or contains rather, necessary steps to take when dealing with drifting in the spiritual life. It's both a preventative to drifting and a reversal of it. Only in that way is it figuratively good medicine for the soul. And we find three specific steps here in our text, which are not the final word on the matter, by the way. The writer will have more to prescribe Christians who deal with drift in some way later in this particular letter, and the rest of the New Testament has plenty more to offer us as well. But what the writer does give us in just these eight verses in chapter 6 is among the most potent steps to take. You might say they top the most comprehensive list of what the Bible prescribes for drifting. Let's examine them now. The first one goes like this. Imitate faith that patiently endures. We find that in verses 13 to 15. Imitate faith that patiently endures. Let me read those verses for you. 
For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by an oath no one, by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. At the end of our last section, the writer commanded Christians in verse 12 to imitate those who through faith and patient endurance inherited God's promises. At the beginning of this new section, he provides us with an example in Abraham, who, he says in verse 15, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. In order to understand just how good of an example of perseverance Abraham is for Christians, we need to consider what the writer gives us here in verses 13 to 15. Let me break it down for you in, in three sections. In the first place, this small text shows us how important it is to see Abraham as a loyal follower with a faith that obeys. It shows us that Abraham is a loyal follower with a faith that obeys. He's a genuine believer who loves God. And that's important if, if the prescription is going to work for you. Let's consider how loyal Abraham was. The promise mentioned in verse 13 that God made to Abraham came after a significant event in his life. It was when he passed the greatest test of faith and loyalty to God. I'm talking, of course, about the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Anyone who knows the story of Abraham and Isaac knows just how much of a test this was to the patriarch. It all started back in Genesis 15, when the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations and that his descendants would be numerous, as numerous as the stars in heaven. God even changed the patriarch's name to Abraham in order to signify this. Oh, it was a great moment in Abraham's life, but just a little hard to believe. You see, up to that point, he had no heirs, and he wasn't getting any younger. Besides, his wife was barren. God must have overlooked these small details, but not to worry, Abraham had it covered. At the suggestion of his wife, he would have a child with his wife's Egyptian handmaiden so that he could have his heir. And he did. He called the child Ishmael. Problem solved. But not so fast. God overlooked nothing. He's sovereign and quite in control of the situation. More than this, God is the one who will build a people for himself from infancy up by his own might. If God said that he will do it, he will. And he did. He gave Abraham a biological child with Sarah, as barren as she was and as aging as they were. In fact, God purposely waited until she was past the age of childbearing and Abraham was 99 just to show them that what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, their inability provided the right conditions for God to work, and he did work. Oh yes, he gave Abraham a miracle baby in the truest sense of that phrase. A husband and wife in their 90s have a child. Wow, how they must have felt. Shocked, awed, thankful, elated. So you can imagine how Abraham must have felt 13 years later when God instructed him now to sacrifice his only son. Sacrifice my son? The one I waited a lifetime to have? But but you gave him to me in my old age. He's the son of promise. 
one in a long line of seed that will produce Messiah, remember? What we, the readers, know of this account that Abraham didn't, of course, is that God was testing his faith and loyalty. And thankfully, Abraham passed the test. He went through it only to be interrupted at the last moment, just before he was to kill Isaac on the altar. God then provided the substitutionary animal for Abraham to kill and confirms the oath that he made with Abraham. We read it in Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting. So Abraham was a believer, a loyal believer. In the second place, this text tells us of the important, of how important it is to see that God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with this loyal believer, Abraham. The oath that God swore to Abraham, he swore by his own name. The text says that's because there was no one greater than he by which to swear. When I was growing up, kids used to say, I swear to God, when they wanted to convince you that they were telling you the truth about something. I swear to God, my mother doesn't know. I swear to God, Jimmy, I don't have any more gum left. By the way, swearing to God wasn't just a kid thing only. Plenty of adults used it too, but I haven't heard it much of late. In fact, not at all that I can remember in many years. I know our court system abandoned it. People no longer swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. No surprise there, though. Our country is not Judeo-Christian in its orientation any longer. You see, the whole idea behind I swear to God is to make oneself accountable to God. So, is the, so he's the highest judge there is. You say, by it, if I don't keep my word, may God judge me. Well, since America doesn't believe in God anymore, or a God who doesn't judge anymore, we swear by nothing, as if that means something. Well, back in Abraham's day, God swore, uh, people swore by God, but here, God is the one taking the oath. And since there's no one higher than he by which to swear, God swears by himself. Now, you have to understand something about covenants and oaths in the Old Testament. They were an important part of relationships. They were weighty, specifically because they invited God's judgment down on the heads of those who might break the covenant. Oaths were also reserved for the most serious of contracts. If you lived in the Old Testament time, you wouldn't take an oath every time you told someone that you would do something. No, it was only when the situation was really significant. Otherwise, swearing to God every time you promised to do something would make the oath so commonplace that it would eventually lose its significance. Well, you might be wondering how that could happen when one swears by God. Wouldn't the threat of judgment still loom in the background, even for glib oath-takers? You'll be interested to know that by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had that problem all figured out. They didn't become experts, or they had rather become experts at abusing oaths without the threat of God's judgment. How'd they do it? They simply wouldn't swear by God. Rather, they would swear by other items that were associated with God, like the gold in the temple, or the altar, or heaven. 
This way they could give people the impression of being sincere when they really weren't and planned all along to go back on their word. And they faced no judgment from God. At least that's what they thought. They were such masters of deception and hypocrisy, but they couldn't fool Jesus. And in Matthew 23, Jesus calls them on it. It was in this context that Jesus would say in his great Sermon on the Mount, Take no oaths, nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Oh, the Lord was not teaching in this passage that Christians should never take an oath or make a covenant, as some have mistakenly concluded. Rather, he wanted to instill integrity in his disciples' word. The word of the world, rather, should take every Christian at his and her word, because Christians are honest and reliable. At least they should be. Jesus essentially is teaching this. When you say yes or no, mean it. Oaths should be reserved, then, for really significant transactions between two parties, like business partnerships or, or marriage, in which case our culture demands covenants. They are really legal and binding contracts. In the case of Abraham, God takes an oath, swearing by himself, since he could swear by no, no one greater than himself, in order to show Abraham, this loyal and faithful believer, just how weighty and significant his promise was. Now, finally, in the third place, verse 15 tells us that Abraham obtained God's promise because by faith he patiently endured throughout his life. Now, this is why the writer holds Abraham up as our model for an aggressive faith, for a confident walk, a walk of faith that perseveres through the ages, even when it may seem to us that God's promises are far away or unlikely to be fulfilled. This is the opposite, you see, of what the Bible calls living by sight, which seems to characterize so many Christians today. To live by sight means that you let what you see happening all around you affect the way you think and behave. It means that you make decisions on the basis of circumstances, and that's always a dangerous thing to do since there's nothing firm or absolute about circumstances. They're always changing. Instead, God calls us to live by faith in his covenant promise, promise of a better country, a heavenly one, a great inheritance, which we cannot see right now, but we know is there. That is the basis of our faith, and it is unchangeable. It's true and everlasting because our God is true and everlasting. Abraham's faith is worthy, then, to be imitated because it shows us how to patiently endure through difficult times when it may appear that God is silent in our lives or when the world and the evil one lead us to doubt God's promises. And they can be very convincing. <clears throat> Let me say it again. What determines whether, we, whether the, the many promises of God, which are sure and are yes in Christ, as Paul says, is God's very character, not the times in which we live. I know it's easier at times to act on what we see rather than on what God has promised, but in those times, we must minister to ourselves with biblical truth, tell ourselves that our times, our culture, the public consciousness, the, the, the world events are not trustworthy. 
They all change in terms of their power and influence, even in, the, in their meaning. Nothing in our culture is morally or spiritually absolute or set in stone, but always in a state of flux. It's the testimony of Scripture, written by Moses' own hand, that Abraham, who faced similar difficulties from his own culture, kept his eye on God's covenant promise and patiently endured. And the thing of it is, he never saw these promises fulfilled in his own lifetime. Well, that's what the writer says later in chapter 11. Listen to how he puts it in verse 13. All these men, including Abraham, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. You might think that's strange, because it says in chapter 6, verse 15, our very text, that Abraham did obtain the promises. <clears throat> so what's going on here? <clears throat> well, I assure you that there's no contradiction. The easiest way to understand these two verses side by side is to see that what Abraham didn't receive in full, according to chapter 11, he did receive in pledge form in chapter 6, verse 15. So the full realization of the blessed hope, the coming of Messiah to judge the living and the dead, and set up his kingdom were to Abraham as good as fulfilled when God confirmed those promises with the miraculous birth and the preservation of Isaac. Let me say that another way. God's promise to Abraham of future glory was to Abraham as good as fulfilled when Abraham received Isaac once by miraculous birth and a second time by God's miraculous intervention. If you could have interviewed Abraham about what keeps him going, he would have said, oh, God's covenant promises, that's what. And I know that's what he'll uh, keep because he confirmed it to me in, in miraculous and astonishing ways. I have no doubt. So come what may, I'm staying the course. I want to say that it's the same with the church today. The Lord has promised <clears throat> to return to judge the living and the dead, to set up his kingdom, and to bring with him a great inheritance that he has given us in the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is a pledge, a guarantee, a deposit of that promise. <clears throat> Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a first installment of our inheritance. A first installment of our inheritance. There should be no question, none whatsoever, in our minds, no doubts that Jesus is coming back to accomplish all that he said he would and take us to that place that is he is now preparing for us. No doubt about it. He gave you the Holy Spirit as a pledge of this great promise. We, like Abraham, with the same promises of, of from God in view, should persevere patiently throughout life until God fulfills these promises. In fact, here's something you should know. We can do a better job than Abraham. That's right. Listen to this. If Abraham could endure difficulties 
and live by faith in the promise of the coming of Messiah and his kingdom because of the pledge that God gave him in Isaac, how much more can we so live in light of the coming of Messiah and his kingdom because of the pledge of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Oh, much more, beloved. We should look to people like Abraham for how to patiently endure life with God's promises in view, no question. The writer even tells us that here. But know this, we are in a much better position than Abraham ever was to live by faith and patiently endure until our faith becomes sight and our hope is realized. And that's because we are members of a better covenant. Besides, Jesus has come once already. He's fulfilled half of the Messianic promises. So our pledge of something greater is not just the Holy Spirit. It's fulfilled Messianic prophecies as well. I want to close out this section of the text by emphasizing that Abraham obtained the promises of God by patiently enduring. The Greek word translated patiently endure is the word perseverance. The idea behind it is plowing through life as we champion righteousness. So if you're doing this right, it shows that you're satisfied with God's lot, resting in the promises of a better country to come, secure in the truth that a good sovereign is bringing history along as he has ordained it, and that there's nothing on this earth that can thwart God's plans. Yes, we mourn over the sinful condition of the world and the depravity of man, but at the same time, we rejoice over the fact that God has solved the problem in Christ. There is no room, therefore, for impatience, for that shows a lack of faith in the Lord himself. There's no room for complaining over difficulty, even horrific treatments or situations, for God has ordained our lot. And there's no room for hopelessness, for God is in control and keeps his promises. The Bible gives us plenty of champions who patiently endured life on earth until they received God's promises, even if it was only at death that they received them. And for us, whether that means we live to see Jesus return or die and are with him instantly, we would do well to imitate the faith of champions, God's champions. Well, that brings us then to the second step in our prescription for drifting, and it goes this way. Be encouraged by God's condescension. Be encouraged by God's condescension, verses 16 to 18. We don't typically use the word condescension in a positive light. When someone is condescending, it means that He's being haughty, acting arrogantly superior to everyone else. But when we talk about God's condescending, it's different. God is superior to everyone else, to his creation. And because he is holy in a consuming fire, he must communicate with us and relate with us human beings in a way that doesn't hurt us and that we can understand and respond to. That's what we mean when we say that God condescended in love. He relates to us in ways that we can understand. The incarnation being the epitome of this. It is meant, of course, to encourage Christians. Let me show you how this develops in verses 16 to 18. The writer says, For people swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath serving as confirmation 
is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. Now, as you read this, I wonder if you find it a curious thing that God took an oath before Abraham. Why would God, who cannot lie, need to take an oath? We read in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He has said it, will he not do it? He has spoken, and will he not make it good? Look, if anyone's yes would be yes, it would be God's. So for God to take an oath seems, well, a rather human thing to do. Not really appropriate for the Lord Almighty. Now, if you're thinking this, you're right in one sense. The Lord didn't have to take an oath. His word was good enough. He did it for Abraham's sake. Here was a man in his old age now with one son to his name. Just one. Not very reassuring for the father of nations whose descendants would be more numerous than the stars in heaven. Now it's true. Abraham had enough experience with God to know that God was true to his word. But even still, God thought it was necessary to give Abraham another confirmation in addition to a miracle baby, as if that wasn't enough. So in order to get rid of any doubt in Abraham's mind that God was willing and able to fulfill his promise no matter how impossible it may have looked from Abraham's vantage point, God condescends and does something rather human. He takes an oath. This is the meaning of verses 16 and 17. God, who swore by himself, since there was no one higher than he by which to swear, took this oath, which served as a confirmation of his promise. Remember, oaths were binding. They were great for preventing and settling disputes. According to verse 7, God desired to demonstrate to his heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable. Once God takes an oath, that's it. He means it. It will happen. And in taking this oath to show that his purpose is unchangeable, we see in verse 18 that God appeals to two unchangeable things. What are they? Well, one is his naked word. His yes is really yes. If God said it, he will do it. God himself is immutable. He's unchangeable, and so is his word. The second unchangeable thing, then, is taking an oath. God takes the extra step and cuts a covenant with Abraham, which was a visible, tangible process. God subjects himself to it, again, to strengthen Abraham's faith. So both God's word and his Oath-taking, assure Abraham that he meant it, for it is impossible for God to lie or deceive his people. Now, the emphasis of these three verses is encouragement. Let's not miss that. God knows that his worshipers, you and I, and, er and, and Christians in every age, need reassurance in our lives. I just said a moment ago that oath-taking 
where covenant cutting was a visible, tangible process. Let me explain that. When God first promised Abraham back in chapter 15 that he would be the father of many nations, have descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven, God cut a covenant with Abraham in the way that men did it back then. That was to take animals, cut them into two halves, place the halves on the ground for the parties of the covenant to walk between. It was a messy and offensive process, but that was the point. By walking through the two halves of the cleaved animals, the parties were saying, may this happen to us if either one of us breaks his word. Genesis 17 describes God coming down in a fiery furnace and passing between the cleaved animals that Abraham placed on the ground. This undoubtedly gave Abraham peace of mind and assurance. Now we, the church, we live under the new covenant, and Jesus himself inaugurated that covenant with his own blood. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks for it, he offered it to his disciples, and he said, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead to confirm this covenant, which, by the way, was a very tangible, visible, concrete confirmation. But now Jesus has left us with an ordinance that recreates what Jesus did at the Last Supper as an ongoing confirmation of his new covenant. This is why we say that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. By that we mean that we can come to experience God's grace by it. By this remembrance, it is as if God is confirming Again, his promise to fulfill the new covenant. And every time we practice it, we are emboldened by this confirmation of that covenant to persevere toward the consummation of it. We have other confirmations. The indwelling Holy Spirit, we mentioned already. The actual Bible itself, which we believe to be God-breathed, is another tangible confirmation. There is also the great cloud of witnesses, both from the Old Testament era, which the writer will refer to in chapter 11, and from our own church history. There is tremendous encouragement from knowing others who have embraced this assurance of their hope and lived in light of it. That's why I personally like to read biographies of sound pastors of church history. They have experienced what I am now experiencing and they overcame. We also mentioned in our last study those in the body with the gift of faith. Well, what have we said so far as a prescription against drift? Imitate faith that patiently endures. Also, be encouraged by God's condescension. The final one is this. Hold firmly to the hope set before you. Hold firmly to the hope set before you. I don't want to underestimate the importance of holding on to our Christian hope that will be reality for us. What God has given us is so wonderful and quite unique. No one has this hope, this certainty of heaven. The writer says in verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable. Our hope of heaven is both sure and reliable and therefore an anchor of the soul. What a wonderful metaphor. We find it used nowhere else in the, in the New Testament for Christian hope. It occurs only here. But that doesn't mean, of course, that the idea it conveys is not supported by the New Testament. Far from it. Paul tells Titus, 
to instruct the members of the local church how to live out their faith. In chapter 2 of his epistle to Titus, he says that older saints should teach the younger saints, that we should live in a way that makes the faith attractive and properly submit to authorities over us. And then to close out this list in chapter 2, the apostle says, In verses 11 to 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Let me paraphrase that just a little. In fact, I'll keep as close as I can to the original. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly and righteously while looking for the blessed hope. That's what we Christians do in this present age. Can can you see the Hebrew 6 theme here? Let me boil this text down to its simplest parts. Ready? Deny and live while looking. Deny and live while looking. Let me be more precise. Deny and live in anticipation. Notice that the looking is the manner in which we are to deny and to live. Do you see that? Notice that the verse itself calls for living in a godly manner in this present age. What is the manner in which we are to live? It tells us it's the anticipatory way or living in expectation of. That is, with one eye on our work and the other on the second coming. Putting it all together, Paul is saying, deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly and righteously in full expectation of the blessed hope. Because that hope will affect our work. We can be sure of this, as sure as we are when we anticipate something exciting in our lives, and we live our lives in light of that. People do this all the time. The Christian's anticipation, of course, of glory is far greater than anything that the world could ever anticipate. And because it's a sure thing, God will not change his mind. It has a greater strengthening effect, too. It makes temptations, life-dominating sins, and hopelessness and despair much easier to overcome. Let's stop for a moment and think about how important it is for people to have hope. A hopeless existence is a terrible one. People with no hope are left languishing, and often, if they suffer hopeless feelings for too long, may very well do themselves in. Everyone looks for hope in something that makes life worth living. This is why the writer refers to the anticipation, this Christian hope, as an anchor for the soul. He chooses his words carefully. Remember, he's addressing a church that shows signs of drifting. The letter as a whole would indicate that they were guided by certain illegitimate fears of persecution, maybe from the empire, maybe from family and friends, or maybe from the community of Judaism. They lost their sense of hope. They were not living in light of glory. If they only had, then they wouldn't fear, and they wouldn't drift. Purpose of an anchor, as you know, is to prevent a ship from being carried away by the ocean current. It digs into the seabed with its hooks and holds the vessel firmly in place. In the same way, the hope of heaven is the Christian's anchor. Beloved, we are moored to the throne of God. 
quite an immovable object. It prevents us drifting away from our orthodox stance in the midst of strong currents of ecumenism or relativism or currents found in a permissive culture or strong religious currents or, or from doubts. We remain anchored in our faith when we are fixed on our hope of Jesus appearing, on seeing him face to face and all that comes with that. No matter how much the floodwaters of secularism rise, we will not be moved, for we are anchored in the hope of glory, of something better that awaits, and that thought drives us to live in anticipation of it. The writer now brings his admonition to a close and segues back into the topic of Jesus as high priestly ministry after the order of Melchizedek. Still speaking of our hope, he says that it enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We have defined hope variously as glory, the reality of heaven, and all that comes with that, of course. When we say that Jesus is our blessed hope, we mean that he is sure to return. But when he does, it's not to live with us here in, 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 in our midst again, but to dispense with the way things are on earth and to set up his eternal kingdom. So our hope is tied to Jesus, to his redemptive work on our behalf. He is, the, he is, in, he is in one sense our hope and the guarantor of our hope, as Paul put it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the writer says that our hope went with Jesus into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, he means that we now have the guarantee of being in the presence of God for eternity. In fact, the writer refers to Jesus as the forerunner, remember? Which means that he pioneered the way into the presence of God. Others will follow. Our hope in future glory is as solid as Jesus himself is. He took us to the presence of the Father, and someday we will know that re- know the reality of that, and so shall we be forever with the Lord. And until then, the fact that Jesus even now is our high priest of an order far superior than the Aaronic order, and ministers to us from the very place that is our hope, encourages us all the more to hold firmly to it. As I bring this to a close, I want to say This is the prescription, or the writer's partial prescription for drifting. From what we've heard, it not only deals with drifting, but it enhances our walk, instills courage, confidence, and joy, even if we're in situations that are not conducive to any of those. It is all forward-looking, beloved, and living in light of the promise, the hope that is ours. It's no surprise that Hope in God's covenant promises has always been the Lord's greatest way to encourage his people. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jesus made a point of telling his disciples in the height of their despair, Let not your heart be troubled, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you will also be. Don't underestimate the prescription for hope. It's powerful. 
It's powerful medicine to combat drifting and at the same time bolster zealous and confident living. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says about hope. Such is man's nature that he is very inactive and lazy unless he is influenced by some affection, either love or hatred, desire, hope, fear, or some other. These affections we see to be the springs that set men a-going in all that affairs of life and engaging them in all their pursuits. I said that at the beginning of our study, I don't want you to think about medicine with the word prescription, but after hearing that God, what God has to say about the way we need to combat drifting, I do want you to think about this prescription with the same sense of urgency. Christians and non-Christians alike are very aggressive and proactive about overcoming their illnesses or diseases, or if not, if it's not something that's curable, obtaining relief from any pain or discomfort. They'll get the prescription. They'll pay for it. They'll fill it. And you can be sure that they'll be ever so vigilant and conscientious to follow it to the letter. They'll be faithful to take the prescription, prescribed dosage at the prescribed time for the prescribed duration with the strong hope that it will have its prescribed effect in the end. Would to God that we Christians would be as vigilant and aggressive and determined with God's prescribed steps to combat drifting and assure a strong, confident, bold, and joyful Christian walk. Amen.